You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my all-time favorite authors, uh, my friend Hannah Mary McKinnon. Uh, Always a pleasure to catch up with you, uh, Hannah, and your new book, Never Coming Home, is absolutely stunning. I know everyone's going to love this book. I know I did. And uh, yeah, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. That's uh, that's so kind of you, Hank. Thank you for having well, me back. Well, absolutely. I, I look forward to chatting uh, every time you've got a new book out. And uh, how many books is this for you now? What What is this, Never Coming Home? This is book six. Book six. Well, yes. Does it uh, Does it get easier? You know, when you when you've got six books, your sixth <laughs> book coming out. You know, as opposed to that first one. You know, it's it's familiar territory for sure, but. Yes. Every book's different and every launch is different, isn't it? That's true. I mean, this is the the third uh, the third of my books um, that has launched during the pandemic. Or, I mean, it's less prevalent perhaps now in, in certain areas, um, but it's less daunting from that sense. I mean, two years ago it was it was very scary launching a book in the pandemic and just the pandemic itself, of course. Right. So it yeah, it's 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 equally as exciting and nerve wracking. But it is familiar territory, so I know what to expect in certain ways and not at yeah. all in others. You never know how the book's going to land. I mean, that you that you never know until it's out in the wild. So that part's always a bit scary. Well, I, I didn't plan to talk about the pandemic, but since you brought it up, I, I do think <laughs> it's uh, it, it's worth talking about for just a minute. Um, the... You know, there are kind of two aspects to it. Um, one is the writing of the book during a pandemic and mm-hmm. and, you know, which has been kind of weird for everybody, because mm-hmm. as writers, we tend to work at home a lot of times and in a in an office by ourselves. And, um, you know, kind of uh, lonesome work is is familiar to us. But there's something weird that happens when, you know, the rest of the world is working from home as well. And. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's a it, it's a um, it's a mental challenge to a lot of people. That, have you experienced any of that? I did. At the, honestly, in the, at the very beginning, when when COVID arrived in Canada, so to speak, or when we went into our first lockdown in the middle of March 2020, that was when I found it really, really difficult. I kept watching the news incessantly, trying to because looking towards Europe predominantly because that was almost like our crystal ball. What's going to be happening in two weeks here? Well, look to Europe and you'll see. So, and I have family here, so in Europe. So it was, it was very daunting and scary. And in the end, I actually had to shut off the news because I wasn't getting anything done. So I limited myself to say half an hour a day. And that was my lot. And I was actually really productive. So Never Coming Home, while this is the third release during the COVID years, <laughs> um, as I shall now refer to it, the COVID years, it's it's actually the, the first book that I wrote entirely during the pandemic. So I wrote, the, I plotted the book, wrote the book and edited the book between 2020 middle of 2020 and, and early 2021 and out of all of my books so far this is the weird thing it was the smoothest to write not the easiest because writing books isn't easy and I, I wouldn't want anyone to think that it is <laughs> but it was the smoothest it was the one that that seemed to just flow and I remember saying to my husband Rob I said to him you know it's going really well and the shoe's going to drop and everything's going to fall apart. And I kept expected, expecting that to happen and it didn't. <laughs> so maybe that was, I don't know, 
the universal karma or whatever um, saying, <laughs> you know, it's been a crappy time. We'll give you this one, but don't expect it for the next 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so happy that it was a, a smooth experience for you. And and I definitely want to kind of dig into to some of your process in a minute. But, um, you know, the other side of of the book business is, you know, you first you have to write a book, but then you have to sell that book. Yes. Um, what has been your experience, uh, you know, during the pandemic with selling books? Because, uh, you know, it, the book industry has, has been interesting uh, because we've we've seen well, one, you know, bookstores, uh, you know, shutting down you know, during lockdowns and things like that. But we've been able to order books online, and there have been some shipping issues and things like that, and and there have been some supply is, supply chain issues with with printed you know bound books, uh, but ebooks and audiobooks have fared fairly well during yes. this. Um, what what has been your experience, and and what have you noticed, uh, you know, in the with the shifting sands of the publishing industry? I think um, if I take my the the first book that came out at the beginning of the pandemic so that will be sister dear in 2020 yeah that one i think has stronger ebook sales like you said i think i think that's probably one of the strongest ones uh and probably because the stores were closed i think that was definitely a big factor um honestly it's my publishers harper collins and they are the ones who do all of the heavy lifting in terms of distribution and, and getting the book into all of the different sales channels in all of the different formats and i really can't fault them i know they've done an extraordinary amount of work to to get the book out there what i did see very early on um of which i was also a, a very active participant was shifting promotional events online so very very early on in covid because i was already comfortable and reasonably well versed in in the tech required to go online I was very quickly participating in online events and those have continued and I hope that they will continue because in terms of audience reach and geography, yes, there are technical limitations, of course, your audience still needs to have the tech to get online. But if you take that out of the equation just for a second, if you go online, you have a much broader reach um, and it's very convenient. So I'm certainly planning on continuing with online events even once the COVID years are over, because I think you you reach so many people who, sure, you can do in-person events, but then geography <laughs> right. and, and physical limitations perhaps will, will prevent people from coming. So it's lovely. I think it's lovely. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has been horrific and horrible, but if there is a silver lining somewhere to be found, yeah, it's one of them is the fact that many many people took this technological leap at the same time right so we've learned many of us have learned okay so this is zoom how does that work <laughs> <laughs> right. um, or Streamyard, or whatever it may be right. so it, i can't say it's a level playing field because again it depends on the person it depends on their circumstance it depends on their access to tech and their ability to use it of course but it has brought many people together, I think, through technology. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, if this had happened, gosh, even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, there wouldn't have been the abundance of online content that we had now. So I've been very thankful that I've been able to, to play a part in that and hopefully provide people some entertainment and light relief through the online events I've done. Right. Well, and and hopefully, you know, when we're fully on the other side of this thing and life gets back to, you know, um, as, as normal as life's going to get back to, maybe yeah. we can, uh, you know, uh, embrace the the live in-person appearances and and also the the online appearances where you yes. can still reach many people. But, yes. you know, there's 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 just no no substitute for handshakes and hugs. That's and right. Signed yeah. books, you know, when when yes. you're able to do that, for sure. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, maybe there'll be a hybrid, you know, maybe there'll be, I can imagine, I think they're already doing them events where they have in person with an online streaming component, which is, which is fabulous. Right, absolutely. Um, and, 
and another thing that that you've I, I guess you guys have been doing it for for a couple of years now you and uh hank philippi ryan uh another one of my favorite authors uh do first chapter fun uh yes. which is a, a fantastic show that you guys do and i pop in all the time on instagram and 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 lurk a bit there and and listen <laughs> to what you guys are doing i love it so much um but what uh how has um you know th- th- there's something that happens when when you talk to other people um you know about the craft and it it's energizes you in a way and that you know that's one reason we do this podcast is because there's no substitute for talking with other people that are in the trenches and doing the work and uh you know sometimes you 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 uh, you know glean a, a a bit of knowledge that you know that you can file away in your toolkit and sometimes it's just the motivation or the the inspiration uh how has doing that show affected your creative life as a writer oh gosh first chapter fun so that was a that was an off-the-cuff thing that that started two years ago in, in March of 2020 um, when I suggested to a group of author friends that I read the first chapter of their book on Instagram and Facebook Live because we were all scrambling because all of our <laughs> events were being cancelled. And I I thought, you know, a few people would, would accept <laughs> for me to do that and it turned into 50 and then Hank came along and she said, how about we partner up and, and read twice a week instead of every day? Because every day was a bit much to do on an ongoing basis. And it just took off from then. And and it's been two years. And it's been, first of all, when I first when I first started it, it was to help give fellow authors content and promote their books. But it was also selfishly for me to get my head out of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, because I was obsessing about it and it, and it was a brilliant distraction because I just didn't have time anymore. You know, that half an hour even that I had limited myself to, I don't even think I used that anymore. Um, so it was fantastic from that point of view. And in terms of on Facebook, certainly, but also on Instagram of building this community, because that's really what it's turned into, the, the, the first chapter fun family with the first chapter funsters. Um, where people are, are regularly tuning in and commenting and we're greeting people by their names. And it, it's just become this lovely half an hour bubble uh, twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, where we get together. It's not in person. It is online. We can't see one another. That's true. But it's just become this lovely um, almost like a safe haven, really, where we just talk about books. The plague does not get mentioned very often. <laughs> Sometimes it slips in, but but not often. It was designated to be a plague-free zone. Um, and the connections I've made within the writing community, whether it's people who are watching readers or authors or their, their publishers, their publicists, their agents, perhaps, it's just been absolutely lovely to be able to pay it forward, to be able to give back to this community, the writing community and reading community that are both so incredibly generous. So it's been it's been a lovely experience. Plus, I get to read first chapters and hear first chapters when Hank, Hank reads them all the time, which has also made me very aware of the importance of really nailing that first chapter. <laughs> Right. So it's been very helpful for that too. It's uh, th- there really is no substitute for a great first chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so funny. I was talking with with Terry Brooks, uh, the the fantasy author, um, a little while ago, and we were talking about how um, just writing and publishing has changed over the decades. And and he said when he wrote the first Shannara books in the 1970s that the uh you know you could get away with having a story that that built for you know eight or ten chapters and when you look back not a whole lot really happens it's it's (laughs) you know building up to a to an inciting incident and now you really have to hit the ground running and you know you need to pull the reader in in chapter one um what have you learned about writing just from from seeing the way other people have done it? Have, have you picked up anything that you you know have filed away in your writer toolkit? I think it's exactly that. I think it's it's basically that if there's if there's any information that 
isn't really necessary in the first chapter, um, take it out <laughs> and, and make sure that at the end of the first chapter, something happens already. Traditionally in thrillers, certainly when, when I first came to writing thrillers a number of years ago, the thinking, and it still is, that something big needs to happen at around about page 50. But I think equally so, something needs to happen in the first chapter, at the end of the first chapter, where where the reader asks themselves, oh my, what happens next and wants to turn the page. So, and I think also already in the first, on the first page, you need to have something that hooks the reader's interest because sometimes with Twitter, you get what, 280 characters, right. uh, which is not even a page, not even a paragraph. So you have to really, really hook the reader right from the beginning, page one, end of chapter one, and then moving forward. Um, certainly with thrillers, with my thrillers, I always try and have a a mini cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. For example, somebody arriving somewhere or discovering somewhere or finding, perhaps finding the answer to a question, but which begs another question. So lots of those those techniques where it's not just the flat ending of a chapter because you basically want to eliminate any reader, any reason the reader might have to put the book down. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's been very, very helpful, certainly seeing all of these first chapters, definitely. Yeah. Um, your books, Never Coming Home is is book six uh, that you've published, as you mentioned. Um, where do you uh, see yourself uh, in the in the publishing landscape and, and genre wise? You know, there we have. We have a bunch of genres, and then under those genres, we have subgenres, and, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, I, and I think those are important for for selling books. You know, you need to know what part of the bookstore to send one to, send someone to if they're looking for a particular kind of story. Um, but but most people that I've met don't really think in those black and white terms of you know I'm writing a domestic suspense thriller, and I know that I have to have this element, this element, this element, and and certain tropes, and you know, it you all you know if you if you start looking at the way the publishing industry lays out, you get the impression that that writers have a checklist of things that they go down, and and, and that's just not the case for most people. But but their their writing does tend to you know kind of fall into certain categories, and that you know that kind of determines where we sell your book but if if someone had never read one of your books how would you describe the kinds of stories that you tell i would say it's in the crime fiction bucket <laughs> which is which is an awfully big bucket but yeah. crime fiction and it's predominantly stories about families and relationships within messed up relationships <laughs> within those families so I don't I don't write police procedurals um, or private detectives, for example. I don't write cozy mysteries either. So it really would be yes, it's general crime fiction where stuff where you take ordinary people and put them in extraordinary circumstances and then turn up the pressure. That's what I write about. It's 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 people focused. It's rather than I don't write gore. The the my books yeah. aren't gory, um, so they're not they're not say hard boiled noir or anything like that. But it's it's really about families um, or relationships, husband wife, as in never coming home, could be father son uh, in her secret son or sisters and sister dear, um, and that's what I like to write about is everyday people, but in extraordinary circumstances, and then and then. And then making making stuff go really wrong for them. Oops, <laughs> they're not real though. People, nobody gets hurt. It's all good. It's, <laughs> they show up every day for work unharmed. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I know that you, uh, from our conversations in the past, you are a, a plotter, mm-hmm. um, and I think you even mentioned earlier that uh, you know, writing during the pandemic, that you you plotted this book and then yes. drafted and edited all during the pandemic. Um, when since you have you always been a, a plotter or did you uh, kind of grow into that as as you became a professional writer i'd say a a always a plotter 
but the more I write, the more I've refined the process that works for me. So to be honest, when I when I outlined my first book, the rom-com, um, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. I just thought, well, I better figure out what this story is going to be, kind of a chapter by chapter thing. I don't even I don't even know if I knew what an outline was, to be honest. I just I just I knew nothing about the craft. I just went for it, which is perhaps not the right way to, to do it, but it, it worked out in the end. Um, but now I really have a, a, a process that serves me really well because when I was first writing, I didn't have any deadlines. So I could take as much time as I pleased, really, yeah. because nobody was expecting anything. But now I have deadlines and I'm never just working on one book. So right now I'm in the midst of um, Never Coming Home about to come out and promoting that. And I'm writing... Uh, so I'm editing the book for 2023, writing another one for 2023 and about to embark on the plot for 2024. And sometimes I might have a book club. A couple of weeks ago, I had a book club for last year's book. Wow. <laughs> so I'm, I'm never just focused on, on, yes, at a time. I'm focused on one book at a time, of course, when I'm working. But during the week, it might be on multiple books, depending on the stage that I'm at with each of them. So I have to be... Uh, for me, I need to be quite meticulous in my in my plotting. Not to say that I'm married to the plot. I always I, I'm always open to my characters leading me elsewhere. My subconscious that would be uh, taking me to a different ending or down a different avenue. Uh, but I do I do need to plot it so I at least have the sense that I know where I'm going. Whether I'll end up where I thought I would end up that depends on the book. I did with Never Coming Home. I did with the one for next year. Um, I didn't necessarily for you will remember me last year's book. So it just it just depends, but definitely a plotter. And the more I write, the more I plot. Hello, everyone. My name is Grace, and I am the cafe manager over here at the Storycraft Cafe. I'm here to personally invite you to come check out the Storycraft Cafe if you haven't already been by. There is so much happening in the cafe this month. We are running live events with authors, doing group writing sprints, and talking a lot about the ins and outs of writing, the joys and the woes. If this sounds like fun, stop by for a cozy digital beverage at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you all there. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case 
never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. I, I think the most people that that uh, plotting kind of scares them is that um, they I think they feel like that once you plot it out, when you outline it, that you are married to that outline mm-hmm. and that you have yes, to. I've heard that. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the big misconceptions. Uh, but do you treat your outline uh, as sort of a living outline? And, and so if a if a moment of inspiration comes when you're writing chapter four and and a character takes an unexpected turn that you didn't think was going to happen and you and you start thinking, well, this is going to. Uh, you know, thinking about the fallout from that. Well, this is going to affect, you know, how this character responds, and uh, and then, you know, all of the implications of that. Then, do you, uh, how much editing does your outline go through during the drafting process? Would you think? I do edit it sometimes. So there have been cases where I, I've changed something early on, where I thought that the plot that I'd written was the bee's knees, and it was going to all work out, and then I start <laughs> writing it, and I think, oh actually maybe in chapter four this needs to happen but then i'd have to go back and like you said what's the domino effect of that decision and what does it do to the other chapters sometimes i've written the book according to the outline and it's during the editing process that i realize hmm there's something not working i think i've got to move this or or remove this or add this in and then i probably won't go back and re-edit the plot um because i've got I've got the story to work with. I've got the whole manuscript to work with. So it doesn't make sense to go and adjust the plot to um, to then rework the manuscript because I'm already doing that. It, it, it's For me, that would be a waste of time. So it, it really depends when I make the decision to shift a little. And if it's the ending, then it, it doesn't matter. I don't need to change the plot, you know, because it's at the end. So who cares? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Did, I, I'm always fascinated by the beginnings of a story because mm-hmm. at, at at one moment in time never coming home does not exist in <laughs> any form or fashion it just it it doesn't exist and then either you start thinking about a character and and then you know this you, you kind of start following this character in your mind and and wondering what kind of trouble you can put her in uh or or maybe you've uh, read a news article and it starts the what if game playing in your mind, and then you you cast that what if game with with characters that you know just appear and you know whatever those elements are that begin to come together. Then never coming home does exist, and it's your job as the writer to kind of dig that story out and 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 you know pull it out of the ground and polish it up and you know, but. But it's sort of this this magical moment of creation where this story is just born and just out of nothing. Um, what usually is that first moment of inspiration for you? So never coming home was an anomaly because typically it's as you mentioned, it's it's a news article, something I've read, something I've heard on the radio, um, generally from the news. Except for the neighbours, actually, that was that was my first suspense novel, uh, where people move in next door, and that came from me standing at the bay window looking outside with two houses going up for sale on our courtyard in really quick succession, and me thinking, hmm, I wonder who's going to move in? Ooh, how complicated could this be? And it going, what if? Going from there. But with, with I was, I was come- hoping you were going to say that there was a murder in your neighbourhood. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, 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 no. Thankfully not. Very quiet. Thankfully very not. quiet in the verbs where I live. No, no. Um, but no, that would be scary. I write crime Good. fiction. I don't want to live it. Thank you. Exactly. You write it so we don't have to live it, right? Exactly. Yes. I scare myself with my books, and that's fine. Um, but never coming home was actually very much character driven. So, I love movies and TV shows where you root for the bad guy or woman knowing really that you shouldn't 
and you start asking yourself, hang on a minute, why am I rooting for the bad guy or woman? I really shouldn't be, but I can't help myself. There's just something about this character that means I'm invested in them, even though they're doing really bad stuff. I almost want them to get away with it. In fact, I do want them to get away with it. So <laughs> that was that was the genesis for Never Coming Home. I was thinking about these characters and I thought that feels like a really interesting challenge to write a character where I have to get the buy-in from the reader that they want to be in the bad person's head for the entire duration of a book and go on that journey with them. And there are two ways of doing that really. Either you can make the character where people love to hate him or her. So I think of Kara Ruder's Best Day Ever with one of the most glorious villains, Paul, who has decided it's going to be the best day ever because he's going to kill his wife. And you're in his mindset and he's just so awful. You just love to hate the guy. And you go along for the ride because you want to see his downfall. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell listeners if there is one or not. I'm not telling. You'll have to get the book and read it. It's a great book. And then another way of doing that is to get the router, the, the router, to get the reader <laughs> to actually like the character. So hate to love him rather than love to hate him or her, but him in, the, in terms of never coming home. And I chose that second route. So it was very deliberate. Lucas hires a hitman to get rid of his very, very wealthy, but equally annoying wife. It's, it hires a hitman on the dark web. It's a despicable act. It's terrible. He has his wife murdered. And yet I gave him well, a couple of techniques I used, I hope, so that not every every reader will like him, but I hope the vast majority of writers will like him because he's funny. Or I think he's funny. Depends if you like my sense of humor or not. But I thought he was really, really fun to write because if you can disregard the fact that he hired a hitman on the dark web to get rid of his wife, he's actually really fun to hang out with. You'd actually probably enjoy going down the pub and having a drink with him because he's he's funny and charming. Um, and he hides his true self really well. <laughs> Um, plus, I gave him a dog. So, I mean, he likes dogs. Come on. You know, how can you not like the guy if he, if he has this stray dog, uh, which his wife wanted to have taken away by animal control? Come on. She's worse than him, surely. So, <laughs> so there's little techniques like that that I use that I hope he will be endearing. And also what I work very, very hard on is for readers to understand why Lucas and how Lucas becomes or became who he is at the beginning of the book so his story his backstory is unraveled slowly so so people can hopefully if not agree with what he's done understand it doesn't make it right but they see where he's coming from so he was he was a really really interesting character to write and my really my first book that was character driven rather than news article or a what if scenario so you, you mentioned that you really wanted this to be a character that that people couldn't help but loving. Yes. They couldn't help but love, even though he at the at the core of the story, he's really doing a, a despicable thing. Yes. Um, is, is it does it come down to degrees of despicable? Do, do you love him because you hate her more? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I do. Like when, when you start kind of building out and, and well, and let me ask it this way. Um, do you start building out these character traits as part of your uh, outlining process as part of your plotting? Do you start thinking of, you know, what, what can I bring out in this character that's going to make him a likable, believable character, even though none of us would, would say that we like what he's doing. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, kind of what is the, the planning process for building those characters? It, it really was a question of, okay, so if I'm going to spend, if I'm going to spend as the writer, the entire duration of the novel writing from the bad guy's perspective, I have to want to be in his perspective because if I don't want to be in it, chances are the reader won't either. So I was really, really conscious of, OK, what can I do to make him relatable, likable and to have readers go along for the ride? So I spent an awful lot of time thinking about him. But 
Lucas actually, he was very gracious in the sense that his character, his voice, came very, very early on in the process. Already from chapter one, I had a good handle on his sense of humour, and he's, he's wry, he's witty, he's sarcastic, and there's this inner monologue. You get basically, the reader gets unfiltered access into the mind of a killer, but who also happens to be funny, <laughs> which, which was which was fun to do. And I also gave him, I gave my antagonist, Lucas, an antagonist. So there's somebody in the book who's worse than him, which I think is was important. And we also, with my editor, we thought a lot about, about Michelle, about Lucas's wife, and made her perhaps not the nicest person. So when people are thinking, oh, well, yeah, he had a murdered, well, pff, I might have too, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Not seriously, obviously, but but kind of empathy. Oh, yeah, she really is annoying. But of course, the reader gets Lucas's view of the world because the entire book is is from his perspective. So he they also receive his interpretation of how Michelle is and what she does and what she's like and her kind of personality. So you also have to take that with a little bit of a well, is he? Is she really that bad? Is he telling? Is he really telling the truth? Or he wants her money, so of course she's going to say she's despicable. You know, so right. so there's a bit of um, a bit of playing in that as well. It, it really was a, a fun book to write. Lucas was a fun character, and I'd never written. That's not true. I had written from the the bad person's point of view in You Will Remember Me, but the character wasn't funny. She was she, they, I can't go too much away who it was, um, <laughs> was seriously messed up. And honestly, I wouldn't have wanted to write an entire book from their point of view. But from Lucas, I would happily write another one because he because he made me laugh so much. And I think because I wrote this one during the pandemic and actually my mum also passed away in, in 2020 and I couldn't get to Switzerland to, to say goodbye because of the pandemic. It was just horrible. It was just it was just horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. But every day, every day when I got up and I knew that I was going to disappear into never coming home, it gave me a place where I could wreak some havoc safely, where nobody gets hurt, um, and where I could laugh because Lucas made me laugh. And that was that's why I think some people have been a bit surprised by Never Coming Home because it's a lot funnier than my other books. It's dark, of course. I mean, the guy hires a hitman to kill his wife. So right. of course it is. <laughs> you know, it is dark. We're dealing with dark themes. But he's funny. And when I wrote it, it probably came out funnier than it might have a few years before because that was what I needed because everything else seemed so bleak and desperate. And the, there's there's something about dark humor that um, that can disarm a situation. Uh, yes, it's really, uh, and, and you know, this is a conversation for for people trained in psychology, and I am definitely not that person. But um, there's something interesting that happens that that uh, a a dark story that that makes us nervously laugh at um, can really take the power out of kind of these big dark things that are going yes. on in, in the world that and it really kind of steals the the power from those big it things. It's really it's really odd. Um mm -hmm. but but fascinating at the same mm -hmm. time. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. Um you mentioned that uh that a lot of this came out of conversations that you had with your editor. Um mm -hmm. when you when you first start publishing, you don't have the benefit of working with an editor from the beginning because uh, most of the time you know you're working on a manuscript that that you are the only person in the world that that knows anything about you know you and a, a handful of family members uh, and then you know when when you uh, get an agent and, and a publisher and then that book comes out uh, to the rest of the world it most of the work has been done by you and you alone mm -hmm. uh, but then when when you've signed on to a publisher and you have a contract, then that that process changes a little bit, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Um, and and there are other people involved in the process from the beginning. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the difference in that working relationship is from uh, the the newbie author who is doing this all on her own and then bringing the finished product to someone, you know, that then will help you kind of whip it into shape and and publish it 
as opposed to what the process is like now when you have an editor and there are other people involved in the process from the beginning? The, you know what, the thing that surprised me the most was when I got my first two book deal with with HarperCollins. So that was for The Neighbours and what became Her Secret Son. So The Neighbours was a book that I worked on for a while. I'd edited it. I'd had beta readers read it. I hadn't hired a freelance editor, but I'd had my agent had read through it. So a lot of people, aside from my agent, who are not in the publishing industry had read it and had commented and given me feedback and it was it was polished and polished and repolished and deconstructed and put together and polished again um and so when my publisher said we want to give you a two book deal the first one is the neighbors and the second one will be whatever it is that we decide together that it will be I was panicking a little bit, um, but then we agreed on the concept for Her Secret Son that came together relatively quickly. And I wrote the manuscript and I called my editor and I said, I am incredibly nervous to send you this manuscript. And she asked why, and I said, because nobody else has seen it. <laughs> Nobody's, you're the only person who has seen this book and I'm, and I'm, I'm terrified. And she said, okay, two things. First of all, we gave you a two book deal because we know you can write. If we didn't think you could write, we wouldn't have bought The Neighbours. So right. relax on that one already, which was, okay, okay, great, but I'm still nervous. And then she said, don't forget that I don't expect her secret son, the first version I see, to be as polished as the first version of The Neighbours that I saw. And that really gave me pause because when you're trying to find an agent and then when an agent is is submitting your manuscript, it's the most, you know, the most highly polished product you can possibly provide. Right. But right. then once you're in, once you have a publisher and stay with the same publishing house, it changes a little because they don't expect it to be to that level, which, which, messed me up a little bit to be honest it was oh uh hmm. and it did it did help but I'm I'm still not the kind of person who will who will hand something in I've only ever done it once when I handed in you will remember me I called my editor and I said I know there are problems with it I like the story but I am I there's just something that's not right. It's not clicking and I can't see what it is. And can you please help me? Which she did. And I love the love the end product. Um, she There was a lot of editing on that one. But with Never Coming Home and the one for, for next year, well, all of them actually, uh, bar that one, I always try, even with Never Coming, with um, You Will Remember Me, I really do the best I can to give them the, the the most possible product that I that I possibly possibly can because that's that's just who I am. That's just that's how I work. That's how I'm wired. Uh, I, I won't send something in if I if I feel that it's three quarters of a job. Yeah. Never coming home is uh, I think it's one of my well I know it's one of my favorite books that I've read um, so far this year that I have oh, so much you. that you know it's. It's odd to say that you have so much fun um, with a book that that uh, revolves around murder and especially <laughs> murder for hire. Um, yes. but, <laughs> but, this, but this book is so much fun and I know people are going to love it. Um, it it really scratches just a number of itches that uh, that I promise uh, people out there. You may not even know that you have this itch, but when you start <laughs> reading this book, I promise you, you're going to love it. Um uh, Hannah, we're, we're going to put links to it uh, in the show notes where you can grab it in audiobook or, uh, you know, or physical paper if you want to hold that. Um, but how do you have you listened to any of the audiobook yet? Um, no, I've only heard a snippet, uh, a very, very maybe a 40 second clip of the first chapter. And I'm so excited to listen because the narrator, Alex Wyndham, he narrated Nate's chapters in The Neighbours, he narrated all of her secret son, and he narrated um, the man on the beach's chapters in You Will Remember Me. So he's kind of my my go-to guy. <laughs> and 
I was so we had a Zoom conversation actually. Um, we we touched base by a Zoom just to chat about the book and the characters and whatnot. And I I cannot wait. I honestly cannot wait to hear what he's done with the different characters because his his voice acting skills are just insane. He's also incidentally, if anyone out there watches Yellow Jackets, um, the hit. Crave, I think it was, TV series that uh, was out late last year uh, with the the all-female football team that crashes in the the uh, Canadian wilderness and they have to survive for, I think, 18 months or however long it is out there. Um, he plays a role in that. He's the detective in the, the present timeline, the detective Kevin. He plays an American detective. He's actually uh, a Brit. So he, he does both voice acting and uh, on camera. And the the voices he does, honest to goodness, sometimes I'm listening and I'm thinking, hold on, is that actually still him or did they get somebody else? Because he has such a range it's and different accents and I cannot wait. So I know when I when I wrote it, um, I, I already thought, OK, he, he has to narrate this. So I was already hearing him in my head how he would narrate it and it was it was already making me laugh so I, I know there are some authors who don't don't listen to their audiobooks because it just it they find it's uncomfortable it's just it weirds them out because it's their work and then they spot the flaws but I approach it from a slightly different angle when I listen to my audiobooks I see them very much as not my work anymore it's the performance that I'm listening to not yeah not the actual words that I wrote and on this on the other side yes it's it's educational um because I will pick up on the things maybe that I repeat too often phrases and stuff I think oh you said you said that particular thing once too many don't do that in the next book and I have a running list I have a, a hit list <laughs> of expressions um or words that I overuse in my manuscripts and then I'll add it to that and, and do a search in the new, latest manuscript and, and take them out. So it's it's really helpful too. But I, I, I cannot wait to hear what Alex has done with it. I just think he's going to be fantastic. Yeah, me as well. It is one of my most anticipated audiobook releases. And oh, we're, well. we're, we're recording this a couple of weeks before the book uh, drops. And when you're hearing this, the book is already out. But but we're recording this in the past, if you will. And and the audiobook isn't quite ready yet. And I'm, I'm so, um, I, you know, kind of chomping at the bits because yes. I love this book so much. And I, I just know that the audiobook performance is going to be just over the top and i can't wait to, to yes so, Same. I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> so we'll put links where where people can go grab the audiobook as well if that's the way you you prefer to consume books um but you know whatever format you choose this will not be a disappointment um hannah always a pleasure to to catch up um tell people where they can find you online if if they want to dig into all of the great stuff that you do of course, with pleasure. So my website is hannahmarymckinnon.com. That's also my Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm Hannah M. McKinnon. And of course, people can find me on First Chapter Fun, both on Facebook and Instagram as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for coming on. And, and, and tell Hank hi for me, if you will. Oh, I will, with pleasure, yes. And thank you Good. so much again for having me back. I think this is round... Three? Oh, there's something like that. Yeah, Very so we're four, just we're just gonna have a standing once a year. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane series. The brutes of the Andersonville Prison Hospital have moved me to the dead room, or so it has come to be known. None so domiciled have yet left this place. We receive only the smallest rations and only cursory care to reduce our odors and spare the nostrils of our keepers. The good Christians of the Confederacy do not see any need to provide comfort to those who will soon sleep soundly enough underground. You must know, at least, how your father came to such an end. At Doctortown, Kilpatrick entrusted me with the conquest of a railroad trestle, and my bummers, my demolition team, acquitted themselves admirably thanks to my ingenuity with powder. We successfully destroyed the trestle work past Morgan's Lake. This would prove to be my entire contribution to the war. 
Federal troops were unable to capture the bridge or overcome the enemy's battery. Kilpatrick withdrew, and my bummers and I found ourselves on the wrong side of the Altamaha River, behind the enemy line with no hope of reaching our encampment. Rebels accosted us, taking our remaining supplies. We escaped and headed south, hoping by a long march to reach Seymour's forces in Jacksonville, but we encountered other rebel encampments at Jessup. Four of my men were lost to gunfire. We marched west, then south again, barely evading capture. We had no choice but to brave the great swamp Okefenokee. Oh, on and on it goes, in every direction, endlessly. We trudged through miles of grasping mud and noxious rot, pursued by hunger and the mosquito, scratching at our arms and faces until all our skin was scourged. We lived off alligator meat at first, then nothing at all. My men grew mutinous, blamed me for all their misfortunes, threatened to throw me in a sack, weigh me down with stones, and sink my body. Yet was I not equally hungry? Did I not starve? I grew weary of their endless insubordination and contempt. Finally, they took hold of me and swore they would hang me by the neck for leading them to ruin. They were five in number, younger than I and more muscular. I was no match for them physically. They lay their hands on me and I burned them. I burned those men. The flame rose from me as from a volcano, stripping the skin from those boys, blackening their faces, roasting their flesh. And let this be my final ghastly confession. I feasted that night, feasted on the meat of my prospective murderers. And that is how I survived. I staggered alone from that swamp, a mad thing, fueled by outrage and guilt. I saw an encampment of rebel soldiers and surrendered myself gladly. They say in Andersonville prison all men are brothers, equal in filth equal in terror, equal in ruin. Yet I feel I may claim some small distinction, at least, for I am surely damned to a greater extent than any here. <laughs>